Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 70, The Tokyo Rose. This week, it's time to talk about one of the most famous treason cases in American history. An American citizen who worked for Japan during World War II, unwillingly it must be said, and whose desperate attempt to put food on the table during those harsh years ruined a good portion of her life. It's time to talk about the Tokyo Rose. There's only one problem, though. There's no such person. The Tokyo Rose was a nickname used for the female announcers for an English-language program called Zero Hour, which was produced during World War II by the Japan Broadcasting Association, or Nippon Hosokai, the NHK. In fact, none of the female announcers for Zero Hour ever even referred to themselves as Tokyo Rose. The nickname, however, is most often identified with a single woman who's going to be the focus of much of this week's podcast, Iwa Toguri, referred to in Japanese by the name Toguri Ikuko. Iwa Toguri was born in Los Angeles, California, ironically enough, on July 4th, 1916. Being born in the U.S., she was automatically made a U.S. citizen. Her parents were Japanese nationals, but if you're born in the United States then you are automatically eligible for U.S. citizenship. Her father, Toguri Jun, came to the U.S. in 1899. After he earned enough money to bring her, Jun arranged for his wife Fumi to join him. Their daughter attended a public high school in Los Angeles and then eventually attended the University of California, Los Angeles, and received a degree in zoology. After graduation, she returned home to live with her parents and work in the family grocery store in L.A. From then on, she would likely have lived a fairly normal life, if not for an odd twist of fate. When she was 25 years old, in July 1941, she was sent back to Japan to care for a sickly aunt for what was supposed to be only a few months. As we've been recently discussing, while she was sailing across the Pacific, the Japanese government had already wrapped up conferences to reaffirm its willingness to resist the United States by any means necessary. Thus, on December 7, 1941, she suddenly found herself trapped in Japan, an American citizen in a hostile country. Like all American citizens in the country, she was immediately tracked down by the Japanese government and put into custody. This is actually a pretty standard practice during the war. The U.S. government did the same thing to Japanese nationals in the U.S. Usually what happens afterwards is that the arrested civilians are exchanged later through a neutral third party. This happened in the Pacific War as well. For example, the Japanese and American ambassadors were swapped somewhere in Africa. However, Evo was not scheduled to be handed over to the U.S. by the Japanese. They wanted to keep her. This was because, in addition to being an American citizen, she was also a Japanese one, having inherited Japanese citizenship from her parents. The Tojo government wanted to avoid returning the several Japanese-American dual citizens it had under arrest to the U.S., because it would look really bad in public relations terms. After all, if these dual citizens were leaving Japan at its moment of need, it would be a bit too much of a rats-leaving-a-sinking-ship image for their comfort. So instead, they tried to convince these dual nationals to abandon their U.S. citizenship in exchange for favorable treatment from the government. Some of them did, but Eva Toguri refused to do so. So instead, the bureaucrats responsible for dealing with these issues decided to try and punish her into compliance by refusing her a ration card. 
War rationing was a huge deal during the Pacific War in Japan. Shortages of everything from food to gas forced the Japanese government to take control of distribution for most of these critical items. Citizens would get their allotment of these rationed items by producing a ration card. Without one, Eva could not access any rationed items and was forced to supply herself off the black market at hugely inflated prices. Eva Toguri was forced to take a series of odd jobs to keep herself fed through 1942, but in 1943 she was extended an offer for regular work that she could not refuse. The Psychological War Division of the Japanese Army General Staff, led by Major Tsuneishi Shigatsugu, had hatched a new idea to attempt to demoralize American troops fighting in the Pacific. Now this all seems kind of silly to us, but it's important to remember that a lot of Japanese military planners thought that the United States military would be plagued by weak morale. They believed that the ethnic diversity and relative comfort of American society would make American soldiers weak. Thus, many of them believed that victory would come when American morale cracked, and particularly in the general staff, several rather bizarre schemes were hatched to make this happen. The United States, for its part, by the way, also had a pretty substantial psychological warfare division, which we're going to talk about in another episode. Anyway, Tsuneishi's schemes tended to revolve around the media. His earliest efforts had involved a propagandistic photojournal called Front, based on the model of Life magazine in the U.S. Now he wanted to produce a propagandistic radio drama to be played in an effort to demoralize American troops in the Pacific. However, he had one major problem. While he had a decent number of people at his disposal who could read and write English, speaking it without a very heavy accent was a pretty big problem. This was a very rare skill in Japan, and the few folks who could do it were extremely sought after. No one was going to pull them away from work in the foreign ministry or the intelligence services to have them work on some silly radio show. So instead, Tsuneishi hit on the idea of using allied prisoners of war to produce his show. They would have no accents, and thus be clear and comprehensible, and possibly even more menacing to Americans because they had already been turned to Japan's advantage. Tsuneishi's show, as we've said, was called Zero Hour, and was broadcast by NHK's radio arm on several shortwave frequencies to maximize the chances of American troops tuning in. His second-in-command was a radio producer at NHK named Hirokawa Yuichi, who actually got his bachelor's degree from my own alma mater, the University of Washington. However, his biggest success was the capture of Major Charles Cousins of the Australian Army. Cousins, who had a distinguished career as a broadcaster back in Australia, had been captured during the fall of Singapore, and was eventually tracked down by Tsuneishi and pressed into service for Zero Hour. Eva Toguri, meanwhile, was offered a job to work at Zero Hour as a broadcaster. Having grown up in the U.S., her English was unaccented, which made her well-suited to the job. She was not the only woman to do this kind of work. In fact, the European counterpart to the Tokyo Rose was Axis Sally, a nickname shared between two women who broadcasted Axis propaganda, Mildred Gillars for the Nazis out of Berlin, and Rita Zucca for the Italian fascists in Rome. So what kind of work did Eva Toguri do for Zero Hour? Well, she read out scripts that were written for her, which generally confined her to a few lines of commentary before leading into some music. 
The theory in the Army General Staff was that music from home would, by virtue of its ability to bring back memories of the home front, undercut the willingness of Americans to fight. They'd all want to go home after hearing this music. The music was interspersed with lines about how the Americans would all be destroyed, how their sweethearts back home had forgotten them and were hooking up with draft dodgers, that kind of thing. It's not clear which, if any, of these statements Tilgray herself said. She denied saying anything with actual propaganda value, and in fact later claimed that she intentionally misread most of her scripts to either take away any bite from them or in fact turn them into jokes that American troops would find funny. Either way, the whole psychological war angle didn't really take. Zero Hour was popular for providing a source of American music for the troops, and after the war, the U.S. Navy even issued a joke citation of merit to the Tokyo Rose for raising troop morale during the war. Here's where it gets a bit tricky, though. Some Allied troops did recall Tokyo Rose doing things like describing Allied troop movements in an effort to unnerve American servicemen with the accuracy of Japanese intelligence. However, no recording of Zero Hour where such pronouncements are recorded survives. That doesn't mean they didn't happen, a lot was lost during the end of the war. But there's no proof that A, such announcements definitely existed, or B, that if they did, Ivo Tuguri was one of the people who read them. Anyway, here's a short sample of what her work on Zero Hour sounded like. The sound quality, as you can tell, is not the greatest. The shortwave radio transmissions were particularly garbled and somewhat difficult to understand. All in all, Eva Toguri worked for Zero Hour for just about two years. The last broadcast on the show was on August 11, 1945. After the dropping of both atomic bombs, they're actually referenced briefly on the show, and only four days before the official announcement of Japan's surrender. Toguri worked alongside a dozen or so other women, all of whom were Japanese nationals. Technically, they were all Tokyo Rose. On air, Toguri specifically identified herself as Orphan Anne. If you listen to the broadcasts and hear that name, then it's her talking. I'm actually going to take the highest quality surviving zero-hour broadcast I can find and put it up on the feed alongside this episode. So if you want to listen to some good old World War II propaganda and see if you can spot Eva Toguri in it, then be my guest. While working for NHK, Toguri also met her husband, Felipe de Aquino, a Portuguese national of partially Japanese ancestry. Thus, she's sometimes referred to by the name Eva Toguri de Aquino. After Japan surrendered, there was a great deal of interest in recovering the real Tokyo Rose. Two American reporters, Harry Brundage and Clark Lee, went to Tokyo in order to try and find her. The two of them tracked down Iwa Toguri and offered her a considerable sum of money, 
$2,000, in fact, which they later reneged on and refused to pay, for exclusive rights to her story. During their discussions with her, she signed a piece of paper identifying herself as Togia Rose. It's unclear why she did this. She insisted later she was not, and it's entirely possible, and in fact I would say pretty likely, that she simply said what she felt she had to say in order to get the money she desperately needed. Toguri was arrested by the occupation government and held in Sugamo Prison, the same complex where the Japanese leadership was awaiting prison. Unlike them, she was released without trial. In 1946, the War and Justice Departments agreed there was insufficient evidence to convict her of anything and released her. Her reprieve, however, only lasted two years. The Department of Justice reopened the case in 1948. Public pressure to arrest and try Toguri began to mount as issues of loyalty began to take the forefront in American society. After all, 1948 is the year before the arrest of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg in the U.S., and only a few years before the beginning of the Second Red Scare and the rise of Joseph McCarthy. Edwin Reischauer, the scholar-ambassador we talked about a few episodes back, also suggested that Toguri's race factored into all of this, as there was still a good deal of anti-Japanese xenophobia floating around in the general public. Toguri was also attacked by Walter Winchell, a right-wing American broadcaster and the American Legion, a veterans association. The spark for their attacks was Toguri's request to have her passport returned to her, she was still in Japan and wanted to be allowed back into the U.S. to see her parents. Winchell's attack in editorial in the Daily Mirror addressed to Toguri was particularly brutal. Winchell accused Toguri of being indirectly complicit in the death of American servicemen and an unreformed traitor. Iva Toguri was arrested in September 1948 for treason and shipped back to the U.S. for trial. In case you're wondering, both of the women who played the part of X as Sally got the same treatment. Mildred Gillars was convicted of treason, but Rita Zuki had renounced her American citizenship before starting her work, and since she was no longer an American citizen, she could not commit treason against the American government. She was, however, convicted of collaborating with the fascists by Italy's new Republican government, so she didn't really dodge the bullet, though in this case it was just a metaphorical bullet, thankfully for her. Charles Cousins, meanwhile, the Australian broadcaster who had also worked on Zero Hour, was sent back to Australia and also tried for treason. In his case, the charges were dropped for lack of evidence. Eva Toguri's treason trial is probably best described as a complete mess. Many of the documents and recordings from Zero Hour had not survived the war, having been either destroyed by the firebombings or by Japanese officials looking to cover their tracks after surrender or by American officials who simply needed to clear out some useless paperwork that no one was ever going to look at again. When Toguri had been arrested for the first time, the Justice Department had begun gathering some materials to try her with, but when they threw out that first case in 1946, they shredded most of these records. Further complicating things, one of the two reporters who found the Tokyo Rose, Harry Brundage, convinced a witness to lie to investigators and positively identify her as Tokyo Rose, presumably because he was afraid it would harm his reputation as a journalist if it were discovered that she was not, in fact, Tokyo Rose. Perjury, apparently, was not too harmful to Brundage's reputation, since he was never indicted for it, even though it is a very serious crime. 
So, the prosecution was forced to rely primarily on American GIs who had listened to the Zero Hour broadcasts and testified that they had heard Eva Toguri's voice. The defense, meanwhile, relied on similar tactics. They, too, called GIs who stated that Toguri's voice was not the one reading propaganda messages. They also brought in two former employees of NHK, Oki Kenkichi and George Mitsushio, both of whom were Japanese-Americans who had read propaganda messages for Japan and who had given up their U.S. citizenship. Several of Toguri's former co-workers and prisoner of war compatriots from NHK also testified in her defense. Most notably, the captured Australian Major Charles Cousins flew to Los Angeles for her trial and defended her. He said she had never read any propaganda and confined herself to announcing music. In addition, like I said before, both he and Toguri claimed they had deliberately misread or changed their scripts on multiple occasions to subvert the propaganda contained in them. The trial hinged, then, on whether the female voices reading propaganda messages to the troops were some of the other Japanese women with whom Toguri had worked, or if Toguri herself had recorded some of them. The most damning evidence against her was provided by a veteran named Marshall Hoot who had commanded a rescue and patrol boat in the Gilbert Islands. He produced a letter to his wife from the war recalling the Zero Hour broadcasts, and an incident where the Tokyo Rose described the movement of a naval bomber squadron. The broadcast was followed shortly after by a Japanese bomber attack, which according to Hoot killed two of his men. Hoot's testimony, however, had changed from an earlier version given during his deposition, Eva Toguri's defense lawyers attempted to make an issue of it, but were prevented from investigating the flaws in Hoot's story. In the end, Eva Toguri was convicted of a single count of treason, namely that in October 1944, she had read the following statement after news of the sinking of some American ships in the Pacific had made the rounds. Quote, Orphans of the Pacific, you really are orphans now. How will you get home now that all of your ships are lost? The jury foreman, John Mann, later told the press that he would have preferred to acquit her, but felt that the instructions given to the jury by the judge prevented him from doing so. Originally, Mann had tried to call a hung jury, essentially voting to admit that the jury can't make a decision, but was prevented from doing so by his fellow jurors. Toguri denied having read these lines, but it did her no good. On October 6, 1949, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison, and fined $10,000, a considerable sum of money in 1949. She served out six years and two months of her sentence at the Alderson Federal Reformatory for Women in West Virginia before being released in January 1956 for good behavior. However, the nightmare was not over for her. Spurred on by considerable public resentment for her role, in fact, one American representative, Paul G. Rogers of Florida, even sent a letter to the Justice Department questioning the legal grounds for releasing her for good behavior. The American Immigration Service told her two months after her release that she was being deported. She had one year to leave the U.S. voluntarily, or the country would begin legal proceedings to deport her to Japan. Eva Toguri refused to cave. She maintained that she had stayed loyal to the U.S., that she had not committed treason, and that she would not be run out of her own country she fought the deportation, which was eventually dropped. She moved to Chicago, where her parents had moved their grocery store and resumed her employment there. Her husband, Felipe de Aquino, had left the U.S. after her trial and, to the best of my knowledge, never came back. 
Tilbury could not leave the U.S. for fear of not being allowed back in, so as far as I know, they never saw each other again. From this point on, Tilbury languished in relative obscurity until the mid-1960s. At this point, Bill Curtis, the head of Investigative Reports, a program on CBS, took an interest in Tilbury's case and offered her a chance to tell her side of the story. Wary at first of drawing more attention to herself, she did eventually agree. The result was the 1969 documentary The Story of Tokyo Rose, which presented her side of what had happened. The documentary helped calm the fear surrounding her case to a considerable extent, and Toguri decided to take a chance. She appealed to the American President Gerald Ford for a pardon in 1977, which he eventually granted during his final full day in office as president before surrendering that office to Jimmy Carter on January 19, 1977. From that point on, Toguri's life was a relatively quiet one, though she did have one more moment of vindication. In 2005, the American Veterans Center awarded her the Edward J. Herlihy Citizenship Award. The award is named for an American broadcaster who read American propaganda and inspired American troops during the war. Toguri, accepting the award, later described it as, quote, the proudest moment of my life. She would die the following year in September 2006. The story of Eva Toguri is a very powerful one. It's a reminder of the ease with which patriotism can turn sour and with which the horrible passions unleashed by war can turn on innocent people. But it's also an inspiring one. Eva Toguri, despite everything leveled against her, stayed loyal to and loved her country to the very end. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week for part one of our two-part biography of Tokugawa Ieyasu. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's all for now, enemies, but there'll be more of the same tomorrow night. Until then, this is Orphan Man, your number one enemy, reminding you, G.I.s, always to be good. Goodbye now.